Thank you for listening to the USAID Learning Lab podcast. I'm your host, Amy Leo. Before we get started with the episode, here's a reminder about the 2017 Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting case competition. If you have a CLA case study from your own work to share, remember to submit it on USAID Learning Lab by Friday, June 16th. Do you collaborate, learn, and adapt in your work? We want to hear about it. Enter the annual CLA case competition. We're looking for real-life case studies describing how USAID staff and implementing partners are using CLA in their work. This is not a call for traditional success stories. We want to hear what's working well, what you're struggling with, and what you've learned along the way. It can be about something big or about one small practice that made an important difference to your work. The competition is open to all types of individuals and organizations working with USAID. Your case submission will showcase your team's innovation and expertise. All eligible cases will be featured on USAID Learning Lab, and the top five will win expense-paid travel to present their case at a CLA event in Washington, D.C. You can submit starting on Monday, May 1st, and the final deadline is Friday, June 16th. Visit USAID Learning Lab for more information. This is the final episode in our in-depth series on collaborating, learning, and adapting, and it's focused on the A in CLA, adapting. If you are tuning in for the first time and unfamiliar with the concept of CLA, listen to our first episode for a good introduction. International development work is often criticized for not being locally led or context aware. By encouraging a CLA approach, USAID is creating space for staff and partners to adapt their strategies and projects in response to their operating environment and stakeholder feedback. I think we would be looking at a very different program had we not adapted at all and had we left things where they were. If we hadn't been able to adapt, I, I think we would have wasted a lot of money. And we would have had very low morale on the project. It would have become the kind of project that the chief of party or the you know the home office executive and myself always railed about in a you know projects that don't work. I sat down with my colleague Sarah Schmidt to hear her take on adapting. I'm Sarah Schmidt, and I'm the Deputy Chief of Party on the USAID Learn contract. Sarah, can you tell me what adapting means in a USAID context? If we want to be able to achieve those development results that we feel are important, we have to be able to be flexible, adjust to our context, adjust to our complex environment that most of the time we are working with. So why doesn't adapting happen more often in a USAID context? A big part of the challenge are the processes that are just part of development and a part of USAID in its context. From contracting to the size of the organization to how decentralized it is. Um, But then also I think that there's this mind shift of... um, being okay that you're not going to know everything up front and that you have to take some risk and that we don't know everything and that change is okay and change is good and it actually will help us get further with less. Making the most of USAID's resources and using ingenuity to achieve better development outcomes is more important now than ever. So with that context, This episode will explore three USAID projects that have adapted and scaled up in response to lessons learned and changes in their local context. Going into these conversations, I had a few key questions. What kind of data informs decision-making around adapting, and who is typically involved in those decisions? 
What enabled these development practitioners to adapt their plans? And last, how would their project's outcomes be different if they didn't adapt? This project needed to figure out how to solve the youth unemployment problem. Bill Baldridge was a contracting officer's representative on one of the five winning cases in the 2016 CLA case competition. He worked with the Pragma Corporation on a job creation and business reform and competitiveness project in Tunisia. Here's Bill. So we initially approached it by the standard approach that development organizations all take, which is to work in the vocational technical training center, thinking that there's the problem is just a lack of skilled workers, which is what almost everybody tells you. Enterprise owners repeatedly say they don't get quality applicants that they want. So we had no reason to disbelieve them until we started working with them and bringing them skilled applicants. And that was really not the problem at all. And so the standard approach that the entire development industry uses failed completely from the outset. I asked Bill to explain to me how and when he knew that his project was not reaching its targets. So we tried to boil this all down to just numbers of jobs, hoping to to be able to drive the cost per job down. But our num- the numbers of jobs we were producing by uh, working with Votech organizations or holding even job fairs or job matching events was just pathetically poor. We would get thousands of people showing up to a job fair, so much so that it was almost, it really was a security risk. I mean, it, there were thousands of people there, but not many jobs resulted. So we had to find a better way. A strong and trusting relationship between USAID and its implementing partner enabled this project to adapt. Listen to what kind of information Bill and his team consulted and how the idea for the adaptation came about. We monitored the data weekly and sat down and had kind of heart-to-heart discussions, you know, as me as a COR and the, the home office executive for the contracting firm. Um, we had a relationship of substantial trust. I mean, he, they signed a contract to deliver jobs. We were paying for it, but we gave them a lot of latitude to experiment with the understanding that failing fast was a lot better than failing slowly. And, and so in one of the weekly management meetings, when we were just really desperate, you know, and failing on all fronts to produce jobs through this sort of supply side by creating a better supply of, of qualified workers, they suggested trying to improve the competitiveness of individual firms. The youngest person on the project, uh, a young Tunisian lady, had already started experimenting on it alone at her desk, matching up local consultants with local companies that the project had all interviewed and putting them together. And it was, it was working uh, remarkably. And they recommended expanding that. And uh, we did, and it just turned into sort of a forest fire, created uh, hundreds of jobs initially, and by the end of the first year, I think almost 4,000 jobs. So we began working with enterprises that already had customers and produced goods or services and sold them to customers. They, They could sell more if they could just figure out how to do it profitably. So we brought in uh, the right local consultants, actually, for each of the businesses, and had local advisors work with local business owners to figure out how to do what they already did well a little bit better. And they uh, entered into, companies entered into an agreement with the project to hire more people, X number of people per company. 
if the advice we gave panned out and they were able to sell more. And uh, it just, it really took off from there. So what does adapting look like from the other side as the USAID implementing partner? I spoke with the 2016 CLA case competition finalist about how her project adapted through a cooperative agreement mechanism. Uh, my name is Nora Valerini. I am a program officer with IREX based here in DC. So I work on the USAID Tecamo program, sometimes known as the Jordan Gender Program. This is a program implemented by IREX in Jordan, focused on gender equity and female empowerment. Listen as Nora describes how feedback from the community in which she was working made it clear that the project needed to change in order to meet its objectives. The social dialogue component was initially envisioned to be an opportunity for people within the community to naturally and organically discuss gender issues that were relevant for them in their community. I think we were initially thinking that we would go into communities, spark these conversations, help people brainstorm solutions to them, and that then the community would sort of take up the mantle of implementing those solutions. It became clear to us that this um, approach was not working, actually because of feedback we were getting from the community. So we were fortunate in that people were very open about saying, we have these ideas, we want to implement these solutions, can you give us funding for it? And I think that's a very common thing in development, that you go into communities, you work with stakeholders and beneficiaries, and inevitably uh, people respond with, do you have money for me? And that's not unfair, um, but certainly we realized that our approach was not working. The Takamol project was not set up for grant making. Nora and her team had to get creative. Here's what they did. Initially, we didn't think that we would be able to pro provide funding. So our first adaptation was to try to change the program activities themselves to engage the community in a different way. For example, one of the issues that came up was within the realm of economic participation, particularly women's economic participation, which in Jordan is quite low, shockingly low, given the high levels of education that you see in Jordan. Um, women identified transportation as being one of the issues for their economic participation, saying that either they or their families felt that there was not a safe way for them to get to a job if they were to get a job. And so we latched onto this idea of women being safe in the public sphere and started a national campaign called From Her Small Home to Her Larger Home. The idea being, you know, women are very much associated with uh, the private sphere, with their own personal private home, but that the nation is really their home as well and that they deserve to be just as safe in their nation, in the public sphere, in that home as they are in their own private home. Um, so we did a couple of activities based on this idea. Um, part of it was working with a couple municipalities on the issue of public transportation. Another was um, an idea called, I think it was Walkie Talkie, where we organized community walks that was sort of blending two different ideas. One was um, sports and gender, so trying to get people more active but also in walking through the community, talking about the issue of you should feel safe walking through your community no matter what. So that was sort of the first adaptation, was trying out different activities that still address the issues that had been raised in, these, in that first iteration, that had been raised in those dialogues, and trying to test out other activities that would address that. When it was determined that this approach wasn't meeting the project's objectives either, Nora and her team went back to USAID to propose a new idea. This time, they found a way to integrate grant making into the project plan. The result was an initiative called Soup to Camel, an NGO marketplace for community members to share their ideas for their own initiatives around gender. 
So in the NGO marketplace, we gather community-based organizations. We um, went into the communities and said, we're going to offer the opportunity to give small grants to um, fund community initiatives that have some sort of gender component. So we brought together, I think it was 40 community-based organizations into a essentially warehouse and they set up literal market stalls because it's meant to be sort of a civil society marketplace. Um, and they presented their ideas and then people from the communities were invited to come sort of visit the stalls, see what the ideas were, and then vote on what they thought were the best ideas. And then the votes from the public, coupled with USAID's input and IRX's input, determined what are the 20 community-based organizations who are going to receive funding. The first time we did it, it was really just to test the idea. It seemed to be wildly successful. I think we had close to 2,000 people come and attend, which is quite large. The ideas were super creative, really great in that they were you know, locally responsive. They were ideas that we may not have come up with ourselves. They're being implemented by people who know the community where they are implementing. They know that it's responsive. Um, but Suit to Camel is great in that we can adapt it to suit other themes. So in the fall, we were focused on political empowerment because Jordan was doing its elections. And so we asked community-based organizations to submit ideas that related to politics and gender, right? And that allows us to then integrate it more broadly into what the rest of the program is doing instead of having these sort of standalone projects that aren't necessarily integrated into the rest of the program. I asked Nora what enabled her CLA approach, and she said that working in a cooperative agreement versus a contract gave IRACs more flexibility to try new things to reach their project's objectives. It was clear that IREX also has an open relationship with their Agreement Officer's Representative, or AOR, at USAID. There's a general sort of understanding of these are the things that you should be trying to accomplish and these are the results that we'd like to see, and there's a rough outline of these are the activities we expect, but we're in communication with USAID very regularly. Um, our AOR was very much aware of what the situation was. It's not an easy thing to admit to yourselves that what you're doing isn't working. <laughs> and. I think it was good that our staff and also, frankly, that our funder was willing to hear that and willing to support our adjusting course. Um, it's very easy to, as an outsider to see why that's obvious. Like, of course, if what you're doing isn't working, you should absolutely change what you're doing. But it's not necessarily easy to admit that as the implementer. No one wants to say, we don't think that what we're doing is working right. Here are some of the other enabling conditions that supported IREX's CLA approach. I think part of it was also the fact that while we weren't necessarily seeing the results that we would have wanted from the first iteration of social dialogue, it was helpful in the second and ultimately the third now current iteration in that it um, established the Tacomal program in the communities that I think enabled us to do different types of programming later um, because we weren't a complete stranger when we were going back and implementing sort of larger, more involved programs. Now we're going to look at a project in which learning and adaptation were built into the plan from the beginning. David Ratliff is a USAID Foreign Service Officer, currently serving on the CLA team in Washington, D.C. Before this post, he was a project manager on the Sahel Resilience Project. You may remember from Episode 3 that resilience is defined as a community's ability to mitigate, adapt to, and recover from shocks and stresses in a matter that reduces chronic vulnerability. The Sahel Resilience Project is focused on resilience, so it's got it's a multi-sector initiative with you know agriculture, um, climate change mitigation, governance, uh, health sector, 
um, economic growth, all different kinds of sectors. David was a project manager, coordinating the efforts between many USAID implementing partners working on different aspects of this project. Here's David explaining how projects work at USAID. The way that USAID talks about projects is not, it's not the same kind of language that other um, development agencies use. So for us, you know, a project is a combination of activities of implementing mechanisms that are, that are under that project that try and um, be more than the sum of their parts. Listen as David describes how learning was built into the project's design. So we, we knew we needed to adapt from the beginning before we even got started. Um, resilience is a fairly new thing. You know, it, it seemed like a buzzword to a lot of people, but for us, um, managing that many partners across multiple countries and countries that we really hadn't done any development programming in since the late 90s, we, we knew that there were gonna be things that we didn't know from the start. And so we planned, we planned to have those opportunities in advance. Um, and we also knew that we needed um, some kind of support. So we, we planned that out as well. So we had what, what we called Sorel, which was our Sahel Resilience Learning Activity. Um, and they were really in charge of bringing all those implementing partners together to discuss those issues, um, to figure out ways that we could better collaborate together, to better complement one another, um, and adapt as we went along. It wasn't a, a, as a result of something going wrong, which you see, uh, you know, a lot of projects are, are just reacting, um, and they call that adapting, but we, you know, we intentionally planned it from the beginning. I asked David to describe what information went into decision-making on adapting. One of the components of the of Sorel, the Sahel Resilience Learning Project, was to look at existing resilience best practices. Um, and what they did was they came up, they did this in collaboration with the other implementing partners, but they came up with a whole um, list of criteria that an activity had to meet um, in order to be considered a resilience best practice. That was kind of the the evidence that we use. So those those activities that met the best practices, then we, we further explored. So we had the different partners actually go out and visit each other's sites to take a look at that evidence, you know, firsthand. So it wasn't just, you know, reading a report or something like that, but they actually got to see it in action. Um, and that was great because they, they got to know each other's work really well. They got to see how they could complement one another and different partners have strengths and weaknesses. And so just through that, um, those experiences, those shared experiences, they were able to find um, a lot of ways to collaborate that we could have never predicted uh, at the start of the project. Here's an example of one of the Sahel Resilience Project's adaptations. We found ways that partners could better collaborate. So one, particular example that I can think of that was was pretty amazing is that we had this activity with the World Food Program, um, hundreds of millions of dollars in this activity, and, and their goal was to build infrastructure because the land is so so fragile and the uh, and over time it's it's just been eroded and eroded and eroded. But they built infrastructure to try and trap water and reclaim this land so to, to keep water on the land to reclaim the, the soil density. We had um, a different implementing partner that had this really cool stonemason 
program. And so they trained local people on how to be stonemasons. And so we were able to bring together um, scale and quality to, you know, so you're, you're not just building hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure that's going to fall down a couple years later, but that it, you know, it's really built to a high level quality and you have local people on the ground that can fix it when it does break. So that was something we were really proud of and um, something that, you know, we were able to put together um, that we didn't originally anticipate. I asked David about the enabling conditions that supported his CLA approach. Everything was brand new. So, you know, we, we were building it you know, we talk about building the plane as you're flying. That's exactly what we were what we were doing, um, and the you know Sorel really helped us to be able to do that. It really helped um, create a, a positive enabling environment that the partners were able to build trust. You would expect in that kind of environment that partners would compete with one another, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're 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 bidding on these different activities and some of them already have existing activities and then they're expected to work uh, with the the partner that that wins the new activity and so um we we expected a lot of competition from the outset um but you know we took the time throughout these partner meetings to be able to build those relationships and build that trust we also, what we did was from the beginning, we had kind of those existing Food for Peace partners out on the ground, and then we, we had these new activities that, that were awarded, and, and they were coming in kind of midstream to all this work that was already going. And we had this, what we called um, a kind of a kickoff launch uh, for, the, for the project and brought all the different partners together. And, um, you know, it was, there were a lot of them there. We had, you know, 150 people, 200 people, depending on the day. So it was, it was a big, it was messy, it was loud. Um, it didn't go exactly how we planned, um, but it, it did what we needed to do. And that was, it brought the chiefs of party together face to face. So they started to get to know each other. Um, and that was, I guess, the best result that we, we could have hoped for at that time. It really allowed them to you know, get off on the right foot and start to see what they could do together and not and not just their specific individual activity. So so it was it was a great way to get collaboration rolling from the from the outset. David shared some insight on how using a CLA approach made him a more effective project manager. The only way that project managers are successful is to to do collaborating, learning and adapting. I mean, there's no that's how you bring your your AORs and CORs together, how you bring your technical experts together um, around, you know, specific questions about what do you, you know, where do you need to know more? Where, where can you find opportunities for the different activities to, um, to collaborate with one another, to do more? I asked Bill, Nora, and David to imagine how their projects would be different if they didn't have the opportunity to adapt. So had we not had the opportunity to adapt, we would have continued to do what most projects like this do, which is work on the supply side, training more people for jobs that don't exist, rather than finding the real problem, which was really the competitiveness of the firms. It was really a weakness at the management level. 
inside the company. So had we not had we not improvised, we wouldn't have three other additional partners or these firms that are really partners with us that write checks into the project that pay for a lot of the assistance. We would have just continued producing trained, more trained workers for jobs that don't exist, perhaps elevating expectations and therefore frustrations among a very frustrated population of well-educated youth in, in the Middle East. I think we would be looking at a very different program had we not adapted at all and had we left things where they were. Um, because one of the problems that we saw in both the first and second iterations, and this has been key in now our third and final iteration, is that the first two, the activities did not well integrate into the program at large. Um, one of, I think, the challenges in doing a solely gender program is making sure that activities are done in a unified, cohesive way. Um, and so in this sort of third and final, I think, final iteration that we have now, the activities that we've developed and the model that we have allow are activities that can be well adapted to suit whatever theme is the program is addressing. We hadn't been able to adapt. I, I think we would have we would have wasted a lot of money. There were a lot of activities that the partners proposed that sounded good at the time, that had been used in other contexts. But when they were brought to the Sahel and the, the context that, that, that we had in the Sahel, I mean, it's one of the poorest regions in the world. I mean, Niger is dead last in the Human um, Development Index. The, the plans that they had just, uh, they needed to be adapted. They needed to be adapted for the, the context and when they were, in which they were working. A lot of the, the technology in that area doesn't work. Um, people don't have the resources to be able to invest in new technology or, 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 or new types of um, practices, you know, and, it, and behavior change is very hard in that area. And so we really had to figure out the approach that would work for the, for the people in that region. collaborating, learning, and adapting is like Star Wars. When I think of adaptive management, um, I love to use the metaphor of, of Star Wars. Um, because if you think about, you know, development practice, it's like this big giant galactic empire that kind of moves slowly and just kind of assimilates everything in its path. Um, and it doesn't respond well to change all the time. And so you have this kind of uh, what I would term the rebel alliance of adaptive management practitioners that are kind of out there on the fringes and trying to um, battle against this giant death star of uh, traditional development. Um, and so, I, you know, I really, that's the way I look at it. The force will be with you always. Visit USAID Learning Lab to find the resources mentioned in this episode and share your thoughts on adapting by tweeting at USAID Learning. Special thanks to David Ratliff, our CLA Master of the Universe. We're going to miss you. Maciej Chalmilewski makes the episode. Our music is by Poddington Bear. 
This is the last episode in our pilot series on collaborating, learning, and adapting at USAID. Stay tuned for more episodes this summer or fall. And if you have ideas of things you'd like us to cover in future episodes, share them with us in the comments on USAID Learning Lab or on Twitter. Thank you for listening. The USAID Learning Lab podcast is a production of USAID Learn, implemented by Dexas Consulting Group and its partner, International Resources Group, a subsidiary of RTI, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in the Bureau of Policy, Planning, and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government.